Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We're your hosts, Justice Stout and Michael Minkoff. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewthearts.org, you can see what we're working on and see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. Did you know the growth in the national abortion rate slowed down after Roe v. Wade? This seems to contradict the narrative we've been telling ourselves about the rise of abortion in the United States. Yeah, we tend to think the change in law caused the abortion epidemic, but what if the abortion epidemic changed the law? And if that's the case, what started it all in the first place? And how can we turn it around? We're going to talk about that and the vital importance of understanding how politics is downstream from culture. So this is a topic that's pretty near and dear to my heart. Um, I, uh, I graduated from Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee, with a degree in politics and science. Um, Political science? Well, actually, our, our major was called... Oh, sorry. Yes. Politics and science. <laughs> I double majored in politics and science. That would be sweet. No, it was... Um, I, major I was thinking science. political science, but I was editing it in my head because it was actually politics and government mm, was, okay. was the major. Um, I've always been really political... So I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story here. Okay. Go ahead and nestle in. I'm, I'm, okay. You make me A some little tea. more. Okay, that looks good. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, uh, growing up in, in the Stout family, uh, I think we always had kind of a finger on the political pulse. Um, regular voters, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty aware of what was happening politically. And um, we would volunteer for a lot of politicians that were running for office, either that we knew personally or um, that we just believed in. Whenever I got to high school age, uh, I would help campaign and uh, do that kind of work. In college, in the summertime, I, I, I would get paid. Um, yeah, I worked on, you know, I was a campaign staffer doing things like door-to-door campaigning and sign placement and stuff like that. Um, and uh, growing up, people would ask me what I wanted to be, and I would always tell them I, I want to be either a pastor or a politician, which is kind of a funny, people would oftentimes laugh at that because they don't it's like oh wow those are pretty different things but i uh wanted to see a change in my country you know there were things i cared about um like justice issues or um uh just things that i wanted to see change in our culture and it seemed like the two best ways to go about doing that were either to become a politician and change the law or become a pastor and change people's opinions. So in my studies uh, in college, however, I started to get a little bit of a different idea, particularly combined with my, my volunteering and working on political ca- campaigns. I quickly realized, and this is the, the simplified version, out on the campaign trail, I realized how reliant or dependent politicians are on their constituents, on their voters. I mean, if you're a U.S. congressman, you're reelected every four years. I mean, that is on your mind. And so you're constantly considering what your 
voting blocks are thinking and what their opinions are and what their values are. And so, man, these politicians, you know, you only get an office if you can appeal to them. And even when you are in office, you're very sensitive about what they're going to approve of or not. So what about the constituents? What influences them? What are making them, you know, what is making them elect certain people and not? And the conclusion that I ended up drawing was that art and entertainment has a huge amount of influence in your um, in, in the opinions that you make of the world and your value system and ultimately who you decide to vote for and the legislation you you approve of um, and so because of that after graduating that's why I got into the work here at renew the arts um, so anyway that's kind of my story and my personal involvement in this. But um, yeah, uh, in the intro, we mentioned Roe v. Wade. This is just a fantastic um, example. It, you would think that, and I grew up hearing this narrative, that uh, America is, you know, putting along, doing just fine. The Supreme Court, out of, you know, judicial overreach, decided Roe v. Wade, and the gates of hell broke loose, and people just started getting tons of abortions because it was legal and it was accessible, and that's where the abortion problem came from. That's simply not the case. There was a huge spike in abortions that was happening in the years prior to Roe v. Wade. Um, we should, we'll try to add a link. Uh, I have, there's a graph that I can show you, but man, this curve is like it turns into a wall. But it's far steeper before the decision of Roe v. Wade. In fact, in the year that Roe v. Wade um, was decided, 1973, it like had already started to plateau, but after that decision, basically plateaued. So it was like, what? if anything, that decision slowed down the rate of abortion in the United States, which is just the opposite of what I grew up um, kind of not even necessarily being told explicitly, but just understanding in general, that's the narrative. So it really does beg the question of what in the world, like how, so what, what happened and what made that a spike of demand in abortion in the first place? Right. And I mean, you can look at it and you just look at history and you're like, okay, well let's look at something that happened before the seventies that might have increased demands for abortion. What happened before the 70s? Before the 70s. Okay, so people 60s. are getting pregnant. We're thinking 60s so here. Yeah. In the 60s, maybe people were getting pregnant. Maybe people who don't want children are getting pregnant. Right, which means that they're having sex. Like free sex. Free, yeah. Like <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe you might have something called, like I don't know, a sexual revolution. A sexual revolution. Mm, interesting. That seems to be pretty well connected to the 60s, which preceded Roe v. Wade. Yes. And in Solidly. some ways necessitated yes. Roe v. Wade in terms of there was just a sea change in the behavior of the whole society. And what was that really driven by? What was the sexual revolution uh, yeah. driven by? Drug, sex, and rock and roll, bro. Like, it was Why don't we do it in the road? <laughs> right. Talking about a cultural shift, a clear cultural shift. Was I in the right key? I don't think so. That, <laughs> that, that sounded more like Howlin' Wolf than John Lennon. Or actually, that was Paul McCartney making fun of John Lennon. Right, right, right. Uh, anyway, um, 
Yeah, so there's a clear cultural shift in the 60s um, that really was driven by art, by music. By the 60s is so dominated by the creativity that happened at the, that time. I mean, you have the birth of rock and roll. You have the... Um, the hips of Elvis, from the hips of Elvis to the uh, screaming teens of the Beatles, right. you have these icons of culture um, that crept up in the 50s, but definitely the heyday was in the 60s. Um, not only musically, but visually, and you have Movies. some really wackadoo films that came mm-hmm. out. I wonder when, was it a little later on that like um, Mrs. Robinson, what's that film? Yeah. Uh, the Graduate. Man. The Graduate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I that's 60s. Yeah. yeah. So, so film, you know, that kind of film and, and avant-garde, avant-garde films dealing with sexuality, among other things, at the time, it's very clear that that era, the 60s, and the sexual revolution was driven, in, at least in a great deal, by artists. Artists and entertainers. Mm-hmm. And that then that cultural shift ended up creating a, a political shift. There was a lot of pressure that was being put. Because, again, uh, you didn't talk about it earlier, but a lot of states were already pushing to legalize yes. uh, abortion. Yeah, so that's what's really interesting. Before the And I didn't even know this until I did a little more research on this. Before the Roe v. Wade decision, there were lots of states that had already legalized it. Um, the Roe v. Wade obviously was an iconic moment where it was like, oh, okay, this one is one for the history books. This is the federal government saying that this needs to be legal for everybody in the United, right. uh, in the United States. Um, but before that, you know, the, uh, there were legislation was, was taking place. So if you look at it from that vantage point, and if you look at those facts, no, it makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. It makes and it's way like, more sense. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like, oh, Roe v. Wade didn't happen. Like it wasn't, Courts made this top-down decision about abortion, and now the best way to fight this decision is to get politicians back. We got to get those, you know, Supreme Court justices. uh, Yeah, we got to get some more Supreme Court justices on the seat. And I'm not saying now is a good time to clarify. (laughs) Uh, Political activism. There's nothing wrong with political activism. I'm still very politically minded. I mean, I studied it for Pete's sake, and um, it's hard to give up. It is, you know, and I still follow it, and I'm st- I vote, and I'm passionate about the issues involved. But I think it is important to understand that with your investment in the political system, you have to understand that more often than not, the politics come because of pre-occurring cultural shifts and transformations, mm-hmm. and that the um, legislation that you see being passed by Congress or the decisions you see being made by Supreme Courts or courts in general, these are fruits of a tree that has already been growing. Right. And that... Um, and you're neutralizing you, your political investment if you're not also investing in cultural transformation. What do you mean by that? That if you're making political investments and trying to get the right people in office, but you're not actually changing the heart of the culture... Then, then it can be a very binary. It won't be effective. Let's 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 ask a question of the Bible. What was probably the most faithful reform king of the Old Testament? He he was he was a, a reformer king. He he absolutely with it, God says no no king before him or after him was as faithful as he was to 
to, to change both the ecclesiastical and political structures in Israel in order to reform them according to the law of God? It sounds like you know the answer, but I'm going to guess first. Okay, guess. Asa. No. Ugh. Uh, Starts with a J. Josiah. Oh, thank you. You, just put, me, you <laughs> put me right out of my misery. I didn't want that. I'm I sorry. wanted to arrive. I'm so sorry. Uh, Josiah. Okay, Josiah. Now, let's, let's ask, who were the prophets that came during Josiah's uh, kingdom? I don't know. You tell me, Michael. Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah especially came within Josiah's reign and Jeremiah's message. Just read Jeremiah and think. Think about whether or not these words would make sense in a nation with a king like Josiah having totally reformed your ecclesiastical and political structures to conform to the law of God. Jeremiah comes and says, the whole system from the top to the bottom is rotten and sick and God is going to destroy this nation. After Josiah reformed it? That's right. Well, that doesn't sound nice. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> but the problem was that the people's hearts had not been changed. You have, after, after Josiah, you have a couple of kings and things degenerate even further, and they go back to, in some ways, the way they were, Manasseh, I mean, child sacrifice with Manasseh and, and mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, and then Babylon comes and destroys the whole thing, 586, 587 uh, BC. Um, but uh, you're looking at the situation and you're saying, how could Jeremiah bring this message like necessitating repentance, saying you guys need to repent. The whole thing is sick. The whole body is sick. There's not a sound part from the top to the bottom, from the rich to the poor. All of you have turned your hearts away. And he says, you've, your faces are toward God, but your backs, you've turned away. You've turned away your hearts, though mm -hmm. not your faces. Right. And so, so you know, even if you were to totally, completely reform, and you couldn't do a better job than Josiah, if you were to totally and completely reform the institutions of the church what and the civil left, government... Culturally, it, socially, and in the hearts and minds of the people... Right. ...still matters a tremendous amount. So in even, fact, even if... Christ it's the most. Right. It's that's the most, most important. important. Mm -hmm. If you don't get that, you don't get anything. Yeah. And this is, uh, this is something that... Um, the founders, the, the founding fathers of the United States um, had at least some grasp of in Washington's farewell address. Mm -hmm. There's the really popular passage that a lot of Christians will quote or whatever, but that religion is an indispensable asset to a free democracy because without it, um, basically a democracy or a republic will rot from, you know... The inside. The inside. Yeah, and, and you have de Tocqueville's extremely famous statement that America is great because America is good, and when she ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Yep. And we're seeing the outworking of that. The problem is that I think a lot of Christians think that the, the, the solution to this is threefold. This is usually what they talk about, that we need pulpit preaching, worldview education, and political activism. And some of them are more, they think political activism is the most important of the three. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I don't disagree, and again, we're going to have a caveat here, again, because I just want to make sure that people understand. I'm not saying that you can just discard pulpit preaching, worldview education, and political activism. 
Those are very important things. And Christians have done them well, actually, for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've gotten better at it in some ways uh, than, than we used to be. And I know that might seem surprising, but in a lot of ways, the homeschool movement and uh, the, the rise of, of, of worldview education through the homeschool movement has really been an extremely popular and extremely effective means to train up the heads yeah. of, of Christian young people. A lot of times those things can be mixed bags, but I don't want to completely uh, yeah. distract you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me There's keep, more to be said about there's that. There's more to be let's... said about that. <laughs> and then you have, you know, pulpit preaching, obviously extraordinarily important. Very, very extraordinarily important, and that should be maintained. We should maintain. That's the thing. Is it's not like an either-or, or it's a both-and situation. Like, you've got to maintain what you're doing well, because that's where— because what happened was we did those things well, and then the, the, uh, our, the enemies of the truth or the enemies of God decided, okay, well, we're well-matched on this battlefield, so we're going to flank them. And they did. They flanked us. And let me tell you my story a little bit because my story is a little different than Justin's. I'm gonna co- I'm gonna settle in. Now. Yeah, yeah, settle will in. You make me some tea. I will make you some tea. Um, I grew up with great pulpit preaching, in an environment of uh, extraordinary political activism and like really good political activism. My my pastor actually ran for Congress, uh, which might be a terrible thing, but uh, <laughs> you know, but but he did. He did. He, he he. They were very interested in politics and Christian politics and 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 the the Christian roots of the United States and uh, and all this. And I learned about the Constitution and I understood all about government and politics from a Christian perspective. Um, and we had great worldview education and apologetics as well, and I went to a Christian school. But by the time I was a teenager, my heart was completely submitted to lust and sin. And even though I knew the right thing in my head, I didn't love the right things. And my life was derailed. I was a fornicator and, a, and a, an alcohol and a drug abuser and a just a, 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 a not a good person. I was not living my life as a, as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I still spoke the right ways, and I had the right face, but my heart was turned away from God. Um, and um, it wasn't until God reached me in my heart that things in my life and my relationship to God and in my relationship to these other things as well, mm-hmm. that the worldview education lit on fire, and my political activism had a new urgency, and the pulpit preaching finally was able to reach my heart when my heart was tender mm-hmm. to the Holy Spirit and to, and, and to my Lord. And, um, and so for me, that was a similar reason why I came into Renew the Arts as well, why, why I began this project with my dad, um, was, yes, we're doing a good job of reaching the heads of our kids, but we're not doing a good job of reaching their hearts. And in some ways, the heart, if we don't have it, it doesn't matter what else we have. Right. Like, that will be our undoing. That, because the, the, our, the enemies of God, the enemies of the church, have found effective ways to reach the heart of, our, of, of the children and our own hearts and the heart of this culture. Um, and so a more recent... Let's talk about some more. Politics. Yeah, this is still this is still still, still uh, going on. This is still a pattern. Yeah. So let's talk recently. We had a, a Burgafell and Hodges uh, versus Hodges, which was the 2015 Supreme Court case that legalized same-sex marriage uh, across the country. 
And um, a lot of people, again, believed this to be an act of extraordinary judicial activism, Supreme Court overreaching its bounds and forcing things Which I on... can actually completely agree with. I, I, oh. I don't, but and Roe v. Wade may have been as well, to yeah, some extent. I absolutely agree with that. But right? this is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is... But the thing is that in our perspective, we're not looking back 40 years or 50 years. We're seeing that this is happening right in our midst. You know, so it's a little easier for us to say... Um, you know, uh, this situation, th this situation was not my heart. This, this was not according to what I wanted to see happen necessarily. Yeah. And so the Supreme Court has sort of gone against the will of the people. But Is I that don't actually think that's true? actually true. Um, so let me, let me talk a little bit. There's an interesting interview from Ty Burrell, who played one of the dads on uh, Modern Family on ABC, which I've never seen. Um, but it was apparently a really popular show. In fact, um, in 2014, when I read this interview, um, which, again, was a year before Obergefell, uh, 2014, Republicans ranked Modern Family the number three show in their top 15 shows. It didn't rank at all in the Democrats' list. Hmm. Um, which is interesting that mm -hmm. that self-proclaimed Democrats didn't rank the show even in their top fifteen. It was number three for Republicans, and this is what Ty Burrell said about this and about the impact that that show was having because of its popularity among conservatives. This, I'm quoting from him. I'm just going to read what he said. This is probably a little overwrought, but I do actually think the writers are making the world a better place. Burrell says earnestly. It's one of my favorite things about the show, Modern Family. I love it when I talk to conservatives, and they're describing all three couples, and they never even mention that one of them is gay. That's the brilliance of the writing. In a completely unaggressive, apolitical way, they are showing this couple as completely normal, dealing with ordinary stuff. The banality of it is the most revolutionary thing. I think if you turned around and asked that same conservative person how they felt about gay marriage, that probably hasn't changed for them. But the seed has been planted nonetheless. It's progress, and it's the coolest thing. So this is a show mm -hmm. on ABC. That's incredible. Yeah, and it's just a show on ABC. And, and, he's, and he's talking about the impact that it's having on conservatives who are uh, who are watching the show, entertained by the show, love the show. Republicans, Republicans. right? I mean, we're saying yes, this, this isn't even just conservative. This is specifically Republicans. Republicans watching this show, and and it's normalizing gay marriage mm -hmm. in their hearts and in their in, in their feelings, in their sight. In their you know, sight. they're seeing yeah, it. Right. It looks to be normal. It, and then a, a year later or so, all of a sudden. This extraordinary act of judicial activism. I don't know that that, again, I don't, like, looking back at Roe v. Wade, we can see that wasn't the case yeah. then. Yeah. Even if we want to say, tell that narrative to ourselves in order to excuse ourselves. Right. But really, I don't think, the, the issue... It was inevitable. It was inevitable. Culturally inevitable. Right. So whenever you look at legislation, well, not even, it's not legislation, but when you look at a court decision like that or legislation... Um, you know that there's a backstory of social moving. There's there's a that's behind an it. ebb and flow that's behind it that's going to push members of Congress, push um, you know the um, 
Supreme Court justices, right. um, presidents, you Pres- know, and yeah. their opinions, you know, in the executive branch, their opinions of what they're going to do and what they can get away with. Right. These are all rooted in the kind of collective mind of collective American culture. Heart. And collective heart, which is in a large way shaped by art and t- entertainment. Yeah. And we're not the only ones saying this. It's, it's really interesting. You can go back and look at... Um, Different organizations that were formed primarily in the 80s and 90s, there was this one uh, dedicated to um, the inclusion of homosexual couples in film. It was like a nonprofit organization dedicated to this. It was really well funded. And it was started in like the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, my hat's in some way off to them. Like, they, yep. They got it. You, you knew it. And that's even for like film, which already disproportionately has... Um, uh, more left-leaning thinkers and filmmakers and um, disproportionate number of homosexuals in that industry. Right. Uh, that they're still, you know, setting up these organizations to push this. So, but it's the bottom line. See, that's the thing is that's what people aren't thinking. Oh, well, it's there's there's again the Hollywood activism. That Hollywood is actively fighting to disintegrate the moral fiber. It's like, well, you know, if you didn't watch it. If you didn't buy it, mm-hmm. it wouldn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Like this really does always come back to you, to me, to us. Yeah. What are we doing in response to this? If you're watching the show and you're excusing some of these things in it that that oh you know they don't necessarily fit with my idea of the world, you, you're but you're, they're not doing anyone any any necessary. It's, it's harm. not actually going to change anything. The good outweighs the bad. It's not actually going to change. It's just entertainment. It's just entertainment. It's not, you know, the really important things happen in politics or the really important things happen in theology or in worldview training. That's what we really need to protect. Now, you don't understand. Protecting those things from all comers will still not be effective Mm -hmm. if the heart of the culture is swayed by the things it loves toward the things that God hates. Yeah. There's a... There's, yeah, people can definitely strategize on that. Um, A really good example of someone understanding this is William Wilberforce. Um, He's known primarily as the English statesman who um, successfully abolished the slave trade in England. Um, He he set out with that goal in mind. He was 27, which is interesting. I'm about to turn 27 next year, or not next year. Uh, Oh, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Wow, look at that. Young whippersnapper. Young whippersnapper. Happy birthday. He was 27, and he said, I have two goals set before me. Number one is the abolition of the slave trade, and number two is the reformation of manners. Now, manners, what he, what he, uh, it's sort of a, not, that word isn't used the same way. Manners is like morality, mm-hmm. the reformation of the morals of the people, the, mm-hmm. the values. values, exactly, the value system of a people. So he you know, at a young age, had this trajectory, like he saw his main heartfelt passion was, mm, the slave trade needs to stop. And there were other political things that he was definitely passionate about, and he was a statesman for most of his life, but this was like the big one for him. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to set my sights on that. But simultaneously, and um, in tandem, inextricably in- <laughs> entwined with that, is the goal of reforming the morality of the people because he could be um, lobbying parliament for 
all the years of his career. But if the general sentiment and demand of the people were to stay the same, he would not get there. So he set himself on those two goals and unbelievably accomplished both of them. Mm-hmm. And um, man, there's a whole lot more. Maybe we'll dedicate a podcast to his efforts. But um, he uh, he started attacking it from all kinds of different angles. He got um, an interesting thing. Uh, a lot of um, notable people like celebrities or just local leaders um, and started meeting with them and encouraging them to set examples of morality and like don't drink as much, like set (laughs) examples of good citizenship. Um, They printed tracts and they, but among the things that they did was the engagement of uh, creatives. They did, uh, uh, William Wedgwood was a a potter Mm -hmm. and he did the the famous um, depiction of the slave on his knees. Am Am I I not not your brother? brother? Am I not a brother? Am I not a man and a brother? Exactly. Mm -hmm. You can basically, you know, most people can conjure up that image. bring that image to my mind. Right now. That was... That was um, Wedgwood, mm. of Wedgwood Pottery. Wow. Of the Clapham Group, like this tight-knit community mm. that um, Will, William Wilberforce developed so that like, as a group, they could start enacting these reformation of manners, the mm. reformation of morality. So yeah, uh, an, a, a visual artist like um, Wedgwood, and then also, oh no, I'm going to forget her name. It was a novelist, a female fictional you know fiction novel novelist um she would write tracks and stuff like that but she was also known for for novels and i can't remember her name right now but um i have to have to post that in the comments but anyway very intentional you know it's very well thought out and it in it it actually resulted in the abolition of the slave trade in william wilberforce's lifetime mm-hmm. and this is england i mean this isn't some small this was the a powerhouse of the day mm-hmm. um and very reliant on the slave trade. So it was an incredible accomplishment and uh, I guess proves that this is, isn't just, it isn't an off-the-wall idea. This is a prudent, even common sense, once considered a common sense approach to understanding the way that laws are made. You know, laws, basically laws are just what we all agree is good. Is is all right. We'll all <laughs> agree to all do right. this. Yes, we'll yeah. all agree to live by this rule. Um, and you know, there is room in the political system for individuals to certainly have impact. Um, but for the most part, the ground swelling um, of of certain types of laws, and yeah, it's going to start at the base level where um, popular demand is, "Hey, we're all going to live like this." Yeah. And that's and that's where it especially has to start. in d- democratic republics or more democratic nations. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that's yeah. like directly I mean, designed yeah, to be yeah. sensitive. We to. can we can cease engagement in the in the arts and accept despotism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fine, right? Like seriously, like we can let our culture degrade to the point where we need a tyrant to actually make us do what we will. Even that's not work. good enough. That's still well. It's I'm just saying that's what it will come to. Jeremiah that's what it does. Still come brings to. his art to that culture. Well, I'm saying I'm saying the chances know. of a good despot is yeah. so oh, so. I'm, so I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, the options we have in front of us as yeah. far as engaging the hearts and the minds of the people, reforming manners, reforming morals, yeah, uh, or despotism 
the 1% chance that it's a good guy, which is only slightly better than the 99% chance that it's a terrible guy and, you know, it's right. a miserable situation. So let's talk about something here because I think it's prone to be misunderstood, which, you know, a lot of these things are. We're sort of exploring some stuff that is not necessarily the most widespread ex- in widespread acceptance. Okay. Um, but why why wouldn't preaching in itself from the pulpit, expositional preaching. Why why isn't expositional preaching from the pulpit in propositions, you mm-hmm. know, like out of you know, let's say Romans or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, why isn't that sufficient? Yeah. Why isn't that for this sufficient? cultural change? Yeah. For this. Yeah. Well, for one thing, you're preaching to the. In, in some senses, you're preaching to. Um, I wouldn't say it's not valuable or necessary. It is important, but it's not going to accomplish the same thing. Yeah, I think so it's valuable if, and necessary, too. I guess the question I'm asking is, why isn't it sufficient? Sufficient. Well, for one thing, people that literally aren't physically in churches aren't going to get that message, for the most part, as far as preaching. I mean, you can talk about street evangelism and stuff like that, and you know, that's a little bit of a, you know, an exception there as far as people preaching outside of the church. Um but for the most part, the preaching that you're talking about happens in church, and so that's just going to reach Christians. So there's this huge segment, an increasing segment in our culture, of non-Christians that just aren't going to hear that at mm-hmm. all. So in that sense, okay, if we want a broad cultural shift, say um, with abortion, you know, if you mm-hmm. want a broad, pastors can preach, and you know, it's important for Christians to understand what they believe about this, um, but. You have to be able to reach more than just people who physically go into churches. And I may already agree with you. Yeah, and so so there's just a limitation of platform right. in that sense. And then even even with the people in those pews, or um, or the people outside of church, there is a um, particularly uh, persuasive means that that um, entertainment and art have of um, deflecting barricades that the mind might bring up if it dif- disagrees with something. Mm-hmm. And um, and so if, you know, you look at a plate, for example, that has a, 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 ch- a slave chained and says, am I not your brother? Mm-hmm. You know, put the plate away, sit down with a guy who believes in, in maintaining the slave trade, and your debate is most likely just going to just rage late into the night because he any good points you say there are counterpoints he's already um, preparing mm-hmm. and um, things that he already believes. But and but, he's, he probably knows a lot of what you're going to say mm-hmm. and has already designed self-justifying you know explanations right for himself because the right. real issue is not whether or not you can actually preach to him or get an audience with him. It's can you actually affect a change? Like, right. it's the change that you're looking for. How do I? How how is how how do we get to the point where there's a change? Obviously, it comes from the Holy Spirit. Uh, but I don't think you were quite finished with what you were saying. So well, I was just saying instead of having those propositions in that debate form, where you know excuses or or retorts will be made. Um, having a creative way of showing, not telling. This is mm-hmm. a big theme of what we're you know, Huge. talking about. Huge. Instead of trying to tell someone and convince their mind, um, showing the issue or topic or whatever it is, the truth to them, in a way that they can see it with new eyes. Mm-hmm. So one of Wilberforce's other things that he did was um, he 
uh, I think he called it like the unholy tour or the, it was something like that where he got a boat full of, you know, peers and leaders and stuff and went into the harbor and actually like came, came up alongside a slave ship and said, mm-hmm. there they are. And now you can turn away mm-hmm. and pretend like you haven't seen, but you have. Mm-hmm. Now you've actually like, you can't turn a blind eye anymore. It's easy to go through your day mm-hmm. and pretend like, eh, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Like, it's not as bad as people are saying it is. But he's like, now you've seen it. Yeah, when you when you have to look at it and smell it. Exactly, something know. tangible and right. so real about confronting it visually, you know, with your senses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the benefits of art. What's so fast, you know, incredible about art is that it can achieve that kind of face-to-face conviction without having the restrictions of like geography or whatever. So right. like with a video, it's like, now yeah. you've seen this. Mm-hmm. Or with a song, it's like, now, now you've, you've heard. Felt it. Exactly. You've felt it. And you can't exactly. go back on that. Exactly. You're never going to be able to go back on that. That's what he's talking about. Now it's obviously used for bad things, but Ty Burrell's talking about the seed has been planted mm-hmm. nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And he was right. There was a seed. that The way they painted this picture normalize this particular uh this particular you know scenario or whatever yeah um and that seed has been planted the other thing i wanted to mention too because again if the holy spirit convicts then it's important for us to be in line with the holy spirit's methods and i just it's not it's something that needs to be repeated and repeated and repeated over and over and over again the holy spirit uses more than one means. Uh-huh. And if you are so dead set on means that, that you have attained mastery of, that you're not willing to switch up your means in order to serve a new context or to serve a new audience, I don't think you're going to be a very effective tool uh, of change in the world. Mm-hmm. Because the, the people in the world who make change in the world humble themselves before God and allow the Holy Spirit to direct them, how may I best serve? How may I best reach? Because let me ask you, I mean, we know who is the man after God's own heart. David. David. Why is it... that one. Nice. (laughs) Why is it that when Nathan the prophet went to David to convict David of his sin, and his purpose was conviction, Mm -hmm. obviously that came from the Holy Spirit, but Nathan was trying to strategize, how can I best How can I get through to this guy? How can I actually get through to this guy who is clearly immured in horrible sin? Mm -hmm. Um, And he tells a story. There's this guy, David. Yeah. There's this guy who's causing all these problems, and he killed this guy for his... And David was like, oh, we got to punish we this We got to punish this man. And when Nathan says, you are the man, David can't take back the, the righteous judgment. The opinion he have about this. Exactly. He, he has made an opinion about this man. And he can't change it. And it and just he happens to be true. him. Yeah. And he knows it's true. And it goes behind any walls that he may have designed in order to if avoid Nathan conviction. If Nathan did go and say, yeah. David, you're in sin. Right. David may not have responded very well. Right. That's the thing. It's how many of us, when somebody comes up to us and says, you know, you're in ugly sin. You're dis- you disgust you're me. You're out of line. You're totally out of line. I mean, I, even like now that we're on the, the homosexual issue to some extent, the Westboro Baptist Church, most of us would say, 
dude, you guys are not going about this the right way. Mm-hmm. This is not, you're not reaching homosexuals. Like, mm-hmm. you are not. Like, going to out. To the point where you're like, you know what? You're just wrong. Yeah. Like, even the, the, <laughs> being so incredibly wrong in your delivery. Yeah. It's, it's not even like, he could have said that better. No. It's like, you know what? They are so far off. Yeah. Like, I don't even agree. Clanging gongs, clashing cymbals. It doesn't have love. so far away from that. But when you consider what love actually means in the the way that we approach people, Nathan approached David with love because he chose the, the means that were most fitted to actually achieving the possibility Mm -hmm. of repentance in David. Yeah. And when we look at our culture and we see, okay, obviously the arts and entertainment are massively influential in our culture. Obviously the culture is what's driving the ship more so than the politics or the worldview or the intellectual milieu or the philosophies or the Mm -hmm. education or the politics. You know, so, so if that's the case... And we see what a massive influence the art is having on culture, that the culture in some ways is looking to art and artists in order to figure out what is it that, what is good? What's the picture of the good life? Mm-hmm. Give us the picture of the good life. Um, yeah. But we're, we're saying, you know, we won't use those means, those low and uh, emotional mm-hmm. and, you know, means. We, instead, we just need to, to preach the pure milk of the word. I mean, I'm sorry, and I know that sounds pious to say those kinds of things, but that's just half a step away from Westboro Baptist. Mm. And like, it really is. Like, it's like, how frank, how honest, how stripped bare does it need to be in order to be the pure milk? Is that even what that phrase means? You know what I mean? Like, I feel like the church has really lost its way on this mm-hmm. and if you go back and uh, if you're going to be like sola scriptura all about the scriptures then go back to the scriptures i was and, about to say like know? if you look at the kind of tools that god used to call out a culture or to shape a culture um there are definitely institutions like government that, mm-hmm. that he set up but man whenever it gets wayward mm-hmm. he sends these prophets in there and and the again we need to do another podcast on the <laughs> association of of um, these prophets to a wayward culture and um, artists and right. creativity. But yeah, he'll send these guys in and they'll lay on their side. Mm-hmm. Or for one day for every year of Judah's rebellion. Or one for day. Ezekiel, they'll have to bake bread over human dung. Same guy. Uh, well, you know, he... Say what? Same guy. Right. And so you have these uh, performances in the city. Hosea. And it's like, oh, oh, that's what we look like. Mm-hmm. So the... There's a strong association there between being creative um, and artistic and um, showing things in a new light that is very important to cultural renewal and cultural rejuvenation. Because it does reach the heart. Yeah. It does reach the heart. And that's what we're looking at. There's a, there's a guy, William Wichterman. You can uh, Google that. There's an um, a article called Culture Upstream from Politics that you can uh, read. And uh, this was done with, this is part of a a series called Building a Healthy Culture. But it's a very interesting article. You could definitely look at that. I want to pull a quote from it. Politics is not enough. 
For too long, cultural conservatives' intent on transforming the nation have focused almost exclusively on the political realm. It is the cultural fields, however, long overgrown with tears from decades of conservative neglect and liberal domination, which need to be plowed and re-sown. Cultural conservatives must learn or relearn that it is the unwritten constitution of culture that shapes the written constitution of a nation. Hmm. That's solid. (laughs) So there it is. So at Renew the Arts, I mean, that's one of the reasons like it's we go up to people and we're like, hey, uh, you know, you need to get more involved in the arts. You need to support artists within your church. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people think that seems like a really peripheral issue in light of the world shaking. I could see myself giving to that maybe after after I give, you know, it's priority eight. And Maybe. on my top list, I have, you know, given to politicians and you know, right. trying to affirm these different. And again, there's nothing wrong with giving to a politician mm. that you believe in. But be smart. Yeah. Be, be strategic. Be strategic. Yeah. I mean, this is this is this is um, not terribly complicated and also incredibly important. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can't and turn a blind eye. One of the things that we haven't really discussed here, and that is. Art is central to worship. And if you want to affect the heart of a culture... Affect what it worships? Affect what it shape worships. Shape what it worships? Yes. That's a, so that's a podcast that actually <laughs> needs to happen. Well, no, it's totally true, because we've talked about this so much about... Um, and who was it? Someone else is, has a big part in this conversation, but the worship, um, how the worship... Like, we are transformed through worship. Right. Um, man, someone else was talking about that, and I can't remember who it was. Yeah, it was, it was William uh, Tyler? William Tyler? William Smith. Yeah. William Smith. William Smith. Yeah, we'll have, mm-hmm. to, we'll have to... Dude, we should have him on. We should. We should try and talk to him about this, because he has a really helpful circle yes. where he talks about... Yes, that's right. Yeah, yes. he has a circle of influences, and politics is one of them, worldview is one of them. Um, but, but culture and worship is one of them. And it, the, the interesting part of it as a culture in term, as a circle, sorry, not as a culture, as a circle is that in, in many ways you can enter in what you need to enter into is the most vulnerable or the most open space for dialogue. And it will have impacts on the other elements of that circle Mm -hmm. that as you affect worship, it affects culture. Right, as you affect worship, it affects art, it affects culture, right. it affects and they policy. certainly and they all circle do. around. It's not they like culture is the farthest back wellspring. No, um, and you know, hopefully, it's obviously the thing that we're really passionate about. But it's certainly not like where the buck stops. All of these things do influence one, one another, another in a really big and way. And politics do influence culture. It is they the abso- case it's true, that yeah. after Roe v. Wade, at least the attitude of the United States concerning abortion did necessarily We're change. by the decision. And the same thing with the recent decision on a gay marriage. Fall, exactly. It is, it's just easy, particularly for us, to emphasize arts and culture because it is an investment that conservatives or Christians just are not making at all. Right. And, and so it's like, It's a vulnerability. It's a, That's yeah, the exactly. issue, is that what you have to look at is, in my time, where am I seeing the greatest openings mm-hmm. for people to hear the truth? And if, those t- if, if you live in a time where what people need is worldview education, 
oh man, if they were educated, they're open to this. They'll right. hear the truth. If you open up a school or something like that, they'll come and you can teach them. Mm-hmm. There's all, there are definitely places in the world where that's still the case, mm-hmm. where it's like you could go to that place and you could preach on the corner and you'd not see a single person saved. But if you opened a school, they'd send their kids to it and all of a sudden you'd start seeing fruits. Right. Right. So, so it's really just a matter of if you're looking at the place where you're at, the place where you're in and considering it, which is what love is, considering the other. You're considering this person. Where are you coming from? Where are you at? How can I reach you? How can I reach you? And I'm looking at this and I'm like, well, politics has sort of reached a dead end. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't care whether a Republican or Democrat Democrat is in office at this point. They don't look all that much different yeah. to me than one another. You know, and I'm looking at worldview education, and I, I know from personal experience that, you know, worldview education can create a nice little shell within which dead man's bones and all sorts of impurities are living. Yeah. Right? And I know that also with, 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 the, with pulpit preaching, that sometimes, you know, it just becomes a structure within which my secret life is living. But I know in my culture, what I'm seeing, the people I'm seeing around me, and the, my children, and, and, and my friends, and, and this generation— um, when I start giving them music and, and, and stories and pictures and movies, mm-hmm. these are the channels. That's they, the opening. They, yeah, exactly. That's where they're open. That's exactly. where they're listening. And it's so important to understand that. And um, if the church wants to grow in the future and thrive, I mean, we have to start recognizing that and investing in that. And if and if you want to see political change, if you're passionate about politics and um and and it, part of during this conversation, I don't want it to sound like this is a left versus right thing. If you're a Christian and you want to see politics influence in the right direction, wherever you land on the aisle, it's essential to start considering cultural investment along with your political um, activism. And in some ways cultural investment will bear for the sake of political yes, change will bear political we're fruit. not saying we don't we that we would love for the laws of the united states to always and forever be wrong it's just you know there's a reason why we didn't even have a law on the books concerning homosexuality until recently and why uh 1973 roe v wade decision you know that whole era starts developing that why didn't the Constitution outlaw abortion? Until then. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, well, because they didn't think it that was something they ever wanted to do. It wasn't an issue. It wasn't anything they wanted to do. So really what we need is to see a change in the hearts of the people. When the people's hearts are turned back to God and they're worshiping him. Yeah. Then, I mean, the honestly, like the laws could almost be whatever at you that wanted. Point, at that point, it kind of... And there's a quote... Oh my goodness, I don't remember who it is. I think it's a Greek guy. Oh man, I can't remember. But he says, I don't care what the what the laws of a land are. Show me their songs. Yeah. Like, I'll tell you what's going on. I'll tell you what songs. it's like to live in this country. Don't show me their laws. Show me their songs. And mm-hmm. I know exactly what's going on. That's a good so uh, we should probably wrap up there. Yeah. We're going to play a song. Um, this album was a project of... Uh, of of ours we sponsored it it's called um sea of glass it's by warbler which is the the name the you know uh pen name the moniker of sean sullivan out in california he makes incredible music uh this was one of our projects that we sponsored and it is 
killer. It's really good. It talks about it, it engages politics in a really passionate, but um, I don't know. Is it is it pretentious to say enlightened? It's it's <laughs> it's very it's it's all him, man. I mean, it's yeah. such a good album. So we're gonna play a song from that called Kool Aid to play us out. To play us out. To play us out. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? To play? Enjoy. There are no words there. <laughs> Things broke. Washington there is dead.